Good morning, everybody. Stefan Molyneux. Oh, my God. It's one day until the end of the month. So we have a lot to celebrate, my friends. We have a lot to celebrate. So within one week, Stefan Molyneux, that would be me, you, us, together, was featured on the number one downloaded podcast on all of iTunes. Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, I was pulling Joe Rogan along. Ah, that guy riding on my coattails again. I can't believe it. Uh, obviously, I was riding on Joe, Joe Rogan's coattails, but we rode all the way to the number one downloaded podcast in all of iTunes. And the Freedom Aid radio show itself was last, well, we missed the peak. It's probably around 50, but it hit 67, number 67, uh, all of iTunes. And I think iTunes is the biggest podcast distributor in the world. So that's... That's pretty good. A number one hit. That's fantastic. Thanks, Joe. We passed 20 million YouTube video views and also passed 100,000 YouTube subscribers. Just fantastic. Now, check this out. Also broke our daily record with over 800 gigabytes of downloads in a single day. 800 gigabytes of downloads in a single day. Well, that's really quite that's really quite something now what we've done unfortunately GoDaddy just can't handle that kind of a throughput to where at the highest tier and people were still taking it took them six hours to download a podcast so uh, Mike and James uh, upgraded and, and what we've done is we've gone to a different kind of system where the podcasts are distributed across a variety of servers and uh, a sort of server handles the downloads by checking out which server is the least busy and doing that and now people are getting their podcasts in minutes not hours now that did cost close to five thousand dollars and will continue to cost cost close to five thousand dollars every year if you would like to help out with that these are the kind of problems that we want to be having <laughs> right but if you would like to help out with that we would really appreciate it fdrurl.com forward slash donate of course uh, you might want to check out the new video on bitcoins, uh, that's uh, I think useful uh, and very helpful. And thanks to Christoph, of course, and Mike for putting that together. Uh, I'm pretty much a sock puppet with their hands up my ass these days, so that's wonderful. And um, I think that's really uh, that's really it. I think I will do uh, a. I don't want to do a rebuttal. I I don't like doing sort of post debate rebuttals. I, I've done them a couple in the past, but it always feels a little bit like going back into the ring after everyone has left and redoing the fight. Uh, you know, the the, the, uh, the debate with uh, Peter Joseph. But I would like to do an analysis of it from a rational standpoint. You know, these were my premises. This is what was rebutted. So people can see the ebb and flow without the uh, the language, right? And without the charisma and without the jokes and all that. And I think that's that's important just to see sort of the positions that were taken and the rebuttals that occurred and didn't occur and so on. I think that's important so that people get used to looking at debates from an analytic standpoint. And uh, I mean, uh, Peter is a very florid communicator. I have my own particular style. And of course, I've developed a style that's supposed to be entertaining and enjoyable, right? I mean, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So um, so stripping it down to its bare bones, was, which was an exercise I did, of course, many years ago in my uh, class on, on Aristotle. You, you strip down the argument to its bare bones. I think that's worth doing because it's not something, tragically, which we get taught 
uh, to do in school. It's entirely natural. I mean, can you imagine politicians facing an audience who knew how to strip down flowery, florid, charismatic speech down to its bare bones essentials? I mean, dear Lord, they wouldn't be politicians. <laughs> They'd have to be philosophers. And then our society would be quite different. So... Yeah, of course, in a democracy, the last thing that the, the, the people in charge want to teach you is how to analyze uh, a position or a speech or an argument. But it's really, really important to do so. So I'd like to – I think I'll do that sort of later today and uh, put that out. Again, this is not a sort of rebuttal. I'm just sort of pointing out this is the, the points that were made and the arguments that were put forward and the rebuttals that occurred or didn't occur, which I think is well worth reviewing just to get used to getting down to the bare bones of a particular rational interaction. There was some sort of question about, well, a debate is an exchange of information. Well, a debate is a fight. A debate is, and, and I have been debating. I was debating in high school. Uh, I was on the debate team. Uh, I was uh, in the top 10 in Canada, my very first year of debating in college. Uh, so I've been doing this for, I guess, literally 30 years off and on now. And... A debate is two people who disagree with each other presenting their best arguments to attempt to get to the truth. And that's really what a debate is. It's not, it's not trying to beat the other person or trying to win. It's trying to get to the truth. Now, of course, both people who come into a debate both believe that they have the correct position. And they have a methodology, hopefully, of reason and evidence to get to that position. And... They have to have a debate and they have to use common, commonly accepted terms. Like if you don't have commonly accepted terms, you actually you can't have a debate. I mean, assuming you don't speak Swahili, you cannot have a debate with someone in Swahili. And so this is one thing that is if, – if you're not experienced in debates, then you wouldn't know this in particular. But you do have to have commonly accepted terms. Like if I'm using the term freedom to mean freedom from coercion and you're using the term freedom to mean freedom from want – or freedom from poverty or freedom from ignorance, then we're just not going to have a productive debate. So this is why commonly accepted terms are very important to agree on at the beginning. And of course, one of the things that I was doing in the Peter Joseph debate was attempting to get commonly accepted terms. Now, Peter, when I sort of when he first used the term anarcho-capitalism, I said, well, this is what it is for those who don't know, and also to make sure that, that we agreed on the definition. And then he said, well, I'm just going to assume that everyone is familiar with what I'm talking about, and that's called preaching to the choir, right? Because everyone who's familiar with what you're talking about probably has a like-minded view. And this is why it's really important to have common definitions if you're going to have a debate. Uh, otherwise, it's sort of like saying, okay, you know, we're going to have uh, a boxing match, and then you show up in a very fast car saying that you're going to lap me. It's like, well, no, these are not the same. <laughs> these are not the same things. We can't have a boxing match with a sports car. So uh, so that's important. It's two people who both believe that they're right, but who have differing perspectives, attempting to convince the others and also open to being convinced by the other. Right? That's obviously important. Otherwise, it's just headbutting. And, uh, but, but commonly agreed on terms is really the essence. Uh, if you don't have that, then you can't have a debate. And uh, unfortunately, that sort of is, is what happened. Anyway, well, thanks so much. I know we've got a whole bunch of, bunch of, bunch of callers today. So Mike, if you'd like to queue up the first one, I will set up my T-ball bet. All right, Stephen P. Go ahead. You're up next. Hey, Steph. 
How many Stevens do we have on this line that we need to go with last? Anyway, go ahead. How's Steven? How are you doing? Well, we have an entire legion of Stevens. <laughs> the Steven army. I have heard tell of this. <laughs> um, it's, it's split into factions, though. There's the Vs. There's the PH. There's the Fs. There's the anyway. So what's up, my friend? There's the, there's the Stefans. The Stefans. Oh, yeah. We're a splinter group. <laughs> um, I just want to say that your conversation with Joe Rogan was really amazing. I think that's probably one of um, the best things I've seen you involved in. And I really want to congratulate, congratulate you on such a great conversation. Um, well, thank you. I mean, obviously, share the thanks with with joe and more yeah. particular mike who set it all up and pestered joe until joe said well it's either a restraining order or a show and i feel <laughs> i'm glad that he went for the latter because lord knows we have enough of the former uh but uh, thank you for that i appreciate that feel free to share it wherever you can yeah i have and i can i will continue to do so but my question involves um uh dealing with self-expression problems in terms of uh family members and well yeah mostly family members so I, I have this kind of problem where it's hard for me to express myself to really um, anyone in my family. I guess mainly my mom and my my brother. And why is that your problem? Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, you said I have this problem where it's hard for me to express myself oh, because I I can't identify anything that I can attribute it to, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm calling is to maybe see what you think is going on oh so you don't you don't know of any external history of an interaction that might cause any difficulties in this area no and that's the weird thing because i really um i my, my relationship with my mom used to be really fantastic and uh, she has no history of um hitting me or or really um abusing me in any verbal manner um, well i mean this is i just really want to let me just point something out here sure I'm probably jumping the gun in entirely the wrong direction, but I want to point out that there are billions, literally billions of people in the world who've never hit or yelled at me, but that doesn't mean that I have a great – I mean it's so sad with with parents that, that this is where we are, where you say, well, okay, but she hasn't hit or yelled at me like like that and, and therefore love. Uh, and Yeah, true, true. But I mean in addition to that, she was with me my entire childhood. She was never – she was a stay-at-home mom. She um, okay. she played with me. Uh, we played video games. We played with toys, uh, pretend, all that good stuff. So I mean, um, it didn't it didn't really start becoming a distance thing until we moved into this uh, new house with well, not really new house, but we moved in with um, with my grandparents. And I guess um, since I live a floor away from her, I just kind of like shut off and. What do you mean? So you live in an apartment building and you live in another floor? I live in the second floor. She she lives upstairs. And I, I guess I rarely go up there unless it's for like to access the kitchen or something like that. And I guess over time, it's just been this um, continual distance. And it's gone to the point where I feel like I'm in this mold where where she doesn't expect me to express myself. And I feel like if I violate that mold, some. I, there's not even any consequence. Like there, there's not. Hang on, hang on. Just before, sure. I just need a few more facts. So, when did you move in to your grandparents? Um, let me see. Three years. Just six, rough. Six rough. years ago. All right. And is it your mother's parents? Yes. Where's your father? Um, he's not here. He's uh, uh my mom is divorced from him. 
And when when did she get divorced? How old were you? And when did she get divorced? And that's the weird thing. I really can't pinpoint it because it's always been with them uh, a declining relationship. So it's like I, d- I don't even know when I can pinpoint the official divorce. They've always sort of been at odds with each other. And if, if it wasn't moving out, he was either like in another room in the house or just... Well, but there must have been a time where he moved out for good, right? I assume, and they actually went through the legal process of divorcing, right? That was also like uh, six years ago. So we sold the house and we moved in with our grandparents, with my mom's parents. So you were an adult by this time, or were you still in your teens? Or uh, I was uh, fourteen. Fourteen, yeah. I'm twenty-one now. And so you certainly do have a model of distance in a relationship, right? Which is your mother with your father, right? Yes. And how was your father's relationship with you? Um, not so good, but not as bad as it could be. Uh, he he hit me a few times, but not in any um consistent way. It was just kind of like, uh, I guess when I did something that really upset him, which is pretty bad. But other than that, he was a uh, pretty big in the verbal, um, abusive aspect. Not so much towards me, but towards my mom. And but he did yell at me. Just not like name calling, just kind of like raising his voice. And uh, how would he verbally abuse your mother? Uh, you know, I, I don't remember. I kind of blocked it off from my memory. But I remember just constant. Uh, like, not, would he call her stupid? Would he call her lazy? Would he call her a bitch? I mean, what would, just out of curiosity, I mean, because it's maybe important, but why, what would he say? Um, I, I don't remember specifics, but if I could guess, it would probably be towards the the last thing you listed a bitch yeah and and it was like back and forth arguments but he was obviously the instigator in a lot of them if not most of them well instigator is a very tough phrase when it comes to married couples but uh all right okay i have no problem no problem with that in particular um and and he was an he's an alcoholic or i think he was I i really don't know the status of his his addiction to alcohol but he right was now. an uh, alcoholic when you were a child. Yes. I'm so sorry. That's a curse and a plague and a half. I, I mean, I said this before. I'll say it again. I really hate alcoholism. Yes, I really, really, really hate alcoholism. <laughs> I don't have any alcoholics in my family, but I've just I've heard enough catastrophes. I have one too many, and uh, I have not touched alcohol. It's just like I have no attraction to it at all. So. Yeah, well, that's um, probably good, right? Because, um, you know, given the genetic history, anyway. So, so, how old were your parents when they married? Did they marry young? Um, let me see. I guess it would be in their late twenties. Their or, late twenties, okay. Mid twenties, maybe. I'm I'm pretty bad at math, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pin it around there. <laughs> and you're in your early twenties, is that right? I'm 21, yeah. Okay, okay. And do you know why they got married? They were um, childhood friends, actually. And was your father an alcoholic when when they got married? Um, not sure about that. Kind of, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's so funny, eh? Just sort of by the by. I mean, it's so funny how often so little we know about our family history that is really kind of essential to know, right? Yeah. You know, there's there's part of me, you know, and I sort of think about families. I sort of think about like, well, what the hell are you talking about? 
you know, I mean, you're with each other for decades. You eat meals every night. You live under the same roof. Like, what the hell have you been filling your mouths up with other than food and trivia if you don't really know much about your parents' history and about how you came to be in this world, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're asking me particularly, we don't really um, sit around at dinner or um, I, I don't spend much time around my family members. No, now, but I mean, in the past you said you had a good relationship, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And when you were a kid and your mother was being verbally abused, would you say that you had a good relationship with her then as well? Yes. And tell me how that's possible. The reason being that if you love your mother and she's being verbally abused, that's going to be very um, upsetting to you, right? Yeah, it was, it was pretty upsetting. And so did you do anything about the verbal abuse? I'm not saying you should have. Obviously, you were a kid. I'm just curious. I mean, there were times where I, where I probably confronted my dad about it or yelled at him or or tried to intervene in some manner, I'm sure. I can't remember specific times, but I remembered something about that general behavior that I might have done. Right. And what happened to your relationship with your father when your parents finally separated permanently? Well, I mean, for the first few months, we did the thing where I saw him every week, but then I just didn't really want to see him anymore. So I kind of made up excuses like, oh, I don't feel like going out or I don't feel good. And eventually, like, he, he caught on. So, I mean, I didn't need the excuses anymore. So I haven't really had a relationship with him in seven years. No, six years, whatever it was. That, that Sorry uh, about that. And what's your theory as to why you're not talking so much with your mom anymore and why this changed when she moved uh, back to her parents' place? Well, I, I don't know if the parents' place has much to do with it particularly. I think the arrangement, me being on a different floor and and um, just being kind of a private person in general has a lot to do with it because this also happened with my brother. Like I used to share a room with my brother and maybe four years ago we, we kind of moved into different rooms and now this whole thing is developing with him as well. So. It, it's it's a strange thing that I experienced, and I'm not really sure what to attribute it to. I mean, I, I've been in I've been in therapy, and she kind of my therapist kind of has a a theory. I'm not sure how how much I agree with it, but she seemed pretty um sure about this. And what she thought was that I had a lot of dependence on my mother, and that's why I um that's why I'm, I'm kind of um, distancing myself from her because I'm angry at the level of dependence that I have. Hmm. Well, I don't know about that. I'm not your therapist, but let me ask you this. What's your mother's relationship like with her parents? Um, very good. Go on. She talks to them often. She goes downstairs and sees them often. And, uh, uh, they're, uh, well, see, I, I'm not really sure exactly because I'm pretty sure that, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure she was hit as a child as a, a disciplinary um, mechanism, which really is, is no excuse. But, um, um, yeah, so I'm not really sure how that played out with her, but she has a good relationship with her parents now. And I can't really imagine the, uh, I can't imagine that it was 
it was relatively too bad. I mean, obviously the spanking introduces some level of of dysfunction, but relative to maybe other people who were spanked, I don't think it was too bad. But I'm not completely sure. Okay, so you have a good relationship with your grandparents. You have a good relationship with the mother, or at least you did. Your mother has a good relationship with your grandparents, right? Yes. I'm going to ask you to perform a little exercise we call moving the bar. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Here we go. Let's put our shoulders to the wheel and move the bar to mix my metaphors in a truly gruesome way. Okay. This would be my argument. You can't live in a house with your mother and your brother and your grandparents and this has been going on for years where you've become progressively more distant and nobody has sat down and had a pretty strong intervention about this growing distance and call these good relationships. Are you asking me? Because I'm not sure how the no, exercise I'm telling works. You. Oh, okay. No, I'm telling you. We can move the bar together. So if you were my son, and the weird thing is I'm actually old enough that that, <laughs> that could be the case. Anyway, but if if you were my son and we lived under the same roof, and we used to talk a lot, and I began to notice that we weren't talking as much, do you know what I would do? What? What would I do? Well, I guess you would have an intervention, as you've said. Yeah. We would sit down, and I would say, I miss you. Uh, we're not talking as much. What's going on? Uh, is there something I've done that's bothering you? Uh, do you? Is there something in the environment that bothers you? Uh, are you? Are you depressed or sad about something else in your life? Uh, you know, wh- when did this happen? Why did this occur? Uh, let's put our heads together and rescue our relationship. Yeah, and, and the thing is, uh, my mom has done that many times, and it's kind of me who has not accepted the um the offer to kind of repair things and i don't i honestly i can't figure out why and that's kind of why i'm calling in i mean i've I've heard my therapist take on it i don't really think she's onto something so i'm kind of like um i, I really would you characterize your childhood on a scale of one to ten sure. with say one being the last caller and 10 being my daughter, <laughs> would, you, would you classify your childhood on a scale of happiness from 1 to 10? Where would you put it? 6 or 7. Oh, come on. Well, that's, that's my subjective. Um... No, come on. Look, you had an alcoholic father Yeah. who hit, who hit you, who's, who yelled at you, who verbally abused your mother. Your parents did not love each other. There was constant instability in their relationship. It took them forever to divorce. And you're going to say that that's a six or a seven? Well, I mean, if you put one as the um, the last caller, but I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess it would be a, a little bit lower than that. I'm not trying to tell you you're wrong or, or rewrite your experiences, but just based on what you've told me, I mean, alcoholism is automatically pretty negative, right? Yeah. Because yeah. it means emotional unavailability and it means confusing, chaotic, and sometimes deranged behavior, right? Yep. And then not having a relationship with your father at all now, not wanting to see your father, that's pretty tragic, right? It is, yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to figure out how you have all these great relationships in the midst of all of this mess. 
I mean, I don't. I have no great... No, but even in the past, when you were a kid. Oh, okay. Had a great relationship with my mom. Had a good, okay relationship with my dad. Had a great relationship with my brother. It's like, well, there was alcohol dependency, addiction, abuse, abandonment issues. Where are all these great relationships? You're basically telling me I grew a wonderful flower out of this piece of rock. I don't understand it. Um, I, I guess it, it was probably because my dad wasn't was he was at work most of the time, so it's kind of like the dysfunction didn't really kick in until he came home. So I mean, there was a whole rest of the day to kind of develop relationships, and obviously the dysfunction pervades the whole day. But it's kind of like there's some there's some room to grow flowers, and my dad didn't really trample on them all too much because he was also pretty distant. Like I said, he, he would live, he well, would you, live in you a different You think distant room. is not a form of abuse? No, I do. I, I do. I, I just mean to go with the metaphor. I don't think he like came into our thing and started trampling our flowers. It was more like, so I mean, the relationship that I had with my mom was a very, a very close one. We, um, like I said, she spent all her time with me. Um, she played with me a lot. Uh, she um, she pretty much did a lot of the things that I would characterize as as good parenting, um, and my relationship with my brother was very good as well. We were we were best friends for the longest time. We played video games together all the time. We played uh, make believe whatever and all these kind of good things. But did you talk? Yes. We we're just talking about stuff you do together. Yes. Did you talk about the biggest issue in the household, which was the abuse and the alcoholism? Um. I couldn't really because my brother is a, quite a few years younger than I am. So it was, it was kind of like, I don't know how I could have um, a sort of profound discussion about that. But we did, obviously, like when there were um, kind of like events going on, like when there were screaming matches, my brother and I would kind of just be in the room and kind of talk about it to the best of my ability, given his age and given my age. So screaming matches, this would be your parents screaming at each other? Yes, and did you talk to your mother about how that bothered you? Um, no, because I guess it was kind of a given because she would try to actively shield me from it. She would kind of like. OK, talk. look, I mean, you, you you can keep fogging and I mean, I'm not blaming you, but sure. you understand like you you've given me a map of a, a, a significant dysfunction within the family, mm-hmm. which is not really being discussed in the family. It's not a topic of conversation. And. I think that you have some rose-colored glasses on that is not your true lived experience. I don't think you have yeah. an accurate emotion. I don't think you <clears throat> have an accurate intellectual view yeah, and that's, of that's, that's your kind history. Of, that's kind of what I want you to shed some light on. So, by Well, all you means. shed all the light on it because you've told me all the facts and then you tell me that the reality is somehow the opposite. You've told me about significant dysfunction within the family, screaming matches, hitting, alcoholism, th- you know, a terrible parent – relationship uh, and so on and then you said but I had great relationships with everyone except my dad and the second simply does not follow from the first and so if you have an emotional experience that is not part of your intellectual view then what usually results is emotional paralysis And it would seem to me that where you're stuck in is a kind of emotional paralysis, and that's because your emotional experience of your childhood is different from your intellectual perspective. And what that usually means is that 
you are following your parents or I guess in this case your mother and your grandmother's a preference for how you should view your childhood. So let me sort of take an extreme example that's not meant to be obviously direct, but hopefully it will clarify this abstract crap that I'm talking about. If you grew up under Stalin, in Stalinist Russia, right, then you would have to publicly portray a very positive view of living under communism, right? Yes. I love it here. America is the devil. Uh, Capitalism sucks. Uh, There's nothing better in the world than waiting three hours a day to get your bread, right? Uh-huh. Because if you didn't do that, you could get severely punished, right? You could just be disappeared by the NKVD. You could end up sharing a cell with Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag, right? Yes. So your emotional experience of communism would be quite opposite from your intellectual or at least your public portrayal of your judgment of communism, right? Yeah. And... That disconnect is very hard on the system, right? The the mind and the heart are supposed to work together, right? The heart is supposed to process the emotions and the head is supposed to extrapolate those to principles, right? Yes. Right. I feel bad when I'm yelled at. People feel bad when they're yelling at, when they're being yelled at. I don't want to make people feel bad, therefore I will not yell at people, right? So the heart says being yelled at feels bad, and the empathy says people who are yelled at feel bad, takes your subjective experience and universalizes it emotionally to all other people. Then your moral sense, your intellectual sense says, I don't want to be a bad, I don't want to make people feel bad. And then the philosophy says, therefore, don't yell at people, right? Yeah. Now, when your emotions and your intellect are in opposition, then you end up with paralysis. You end up uh, with people getting stuck, right? Yeah. And the story that you're telling me about your childhood versus the facts of your childhood seem at opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's a, I think emotional paralysis is a very good way to characterize it. I think that's pretty much spot on. Well, and you're not in the relationship with your mom, but you're not moving out, right? So this is you're stuck, right, in in a sort of distant orbit, right? Yeah, can't break free, can't connect, right? That's limbo. Yeah, and I sort of, I what I want is to repair the relationship, and I know my mom is. No, 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 no. Yeah. Oh God, what a terrible thing to say. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had a visceral reaction to that. Sure. That's manipulative. You can't repair a relationship. You can't. It's not a car. I mean, a relationship is not an object that you can fix. There's only one thing that you can choose to do in a relationship. Then that is. You either choose to be honest or you choose to lie. Now, the choice may not be conscious and you may think that you're being honest when you're not. But the reality is you either choose to be honest or you choose to lie. And and if you don't know, you then make the commitment to, to figure out which is which in what you're saying. Okay. Right? Well, that, you cannot but, repair the relationship. It's so not a thing. I, I want to choose to be honest then. I want okay. To, okay. Yeah. So – you say that your mother has been trying to work things out with you and have have your grandparents been trying to intervene in this way as well? Um, No. Right. Okay. So I'm going to tell you some things that I would say if I were your mom. Go for it. And um, maybe this will strike a chord with you. Maybe it's complete nonsense, but I will tell you things that I would say if I were your mom. 
I would say, Stephen, I've got some things that I need to apologize for about your upbringing. First of all, I had a child with an alcoholic, and he was not emotionally available. It was not a positive for us, usually when he came home. He was distant. He was unpredictable. He hit you. He yelled at you. And I also exposed you to verbal abuse against me, which is very toxic for children. And that was not your fault. I chose a bad father for you, which I'm very sorry about. I mean, you don't have any relationship with him at all anymore. And a boy needs his daddy. We didn't model for you what a healthy adult love relationship looks like. We didn't model for you how people solve problems when they have disagreements. We didn't model for you a commitment to honesty. We didn't model for you best behavior in a relationship. He was drunk and I put up with it. He was verbally abusive and I put up with it. And I was verbally abusive at times because sometimes there were screaming matches, which were very destructive for you and your brother because it threatens the family unit when you see your parents screaming at each other. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that I didn't lay down the law with your father and tell him to get into an alcohol addiction treatment program. I'm sorry <clears throat> that I let this drag on and on and on. I'm sorry that I put my financial needs and maybe even your financial needs ahead of what was actually healthy for you. I'm sorry that I modeled putting up with this kind of behavior. I'm sorry that even when I separated from your dad, that I didn't really push for him to get into a treatment program so that he could have some kind of relationship with you. Um, and I'm really sorry that we didn't, as parents, when we had problems we could not solve, that we did not turn to experts to help us solve those problems. I'm sorry that we didn't go to family counseling. I'm sorry that we didn't go to therapy. I'm sorry that we didn't go and get the help from the professionals that we needed in order to either keep the family together or have a breakup, which would not kill your relationship with your father. I'm sorry about the mistakes. I'm sorry for hitting you. I'm sorry for yelling at you. I'm sorry for being your playmate instead of your mom. I'm sorry that I didn't act in ways that would naturally evoke respect in you, even in difficult situations. I'm sorry that I put my daily needs for anxiety avoidance ahead of what was best for you as a child. I'm sorry that I put my fears ahead of what was best for you as a child. And I can understand why you having trouble talking to me because I'm also sorry that I haven't said this to you before because you needed to know this years ago. You needed to know this in the breakup. You needed to know this when you were a teenager. And the fact that we haven't talked about what is really important in our shared experience is why we're not having a relationship right now. Because these are the things that we need to talk about. These are the things that were my responsibility, not your responsibility as a child, not your responsibility as my offspring. This was my responsibility as the adult, as the mother, as the parent, to do what was best for my children. And having a drunken abuser around my children and letting him abuse me and choosing to abuse him, letting him hit you, letting him yell at you, letting him frighten you, letting him bully you, was not what I should have been doing as a mom. And there's no way for me to undo that. 
Yeah. Now that's what I mean by a relationship. Yeah. And what would that conversation be like for you? Um, if she, if she had initiated that sort of thing, I'm not. Hmm. I I think I could open up to her in that case. There have been similar conversations in the past, not quite like that, but maybe fragments of that. Um, where I have opened up, and we kind of had this um, visceral, emotional moment where we're we're honest with each other. That has happened, but it's very rare, and it's it's a combination of her not taking the initiative and me kind of just being um, emotionally uh, um, repulsive, as in I don't want to talk about it right now or that sort of thing. So I think that it, it could... Well, have... I would imagine it's because you don't think that the conversation is going to continue. Yeah, maybe... You know, there's a... Uh, there's a funny thing that, that, that's hard for people to understand, which is you do something until it works. You do something until it works. If you want to break through to someone emotionally, you keep doing it until it works. I mean, particularly parent-child, and it's all on the parent. It's all on the parent defines the whole relationship. That's yeah. why you at the beginning you said I have this problem connecting. It's like, well, how do you know that it's your problem? Your parents, your mother defines your entire relationship with her because she was the parent and you were the child. She defines the whole relationship. If there's a problem in your relationship with your mother, it's your mother's fault. Yeah. Let me say that again. If there's a problem in your relationship with your mother, it's your mother's fault. And and when you become a parent, it will be your fault. And and I'm a parent. My relationship with my child, the quality of my relationship with my daughter is 100% me. Yeah, that's a good point. 100% me. So don't say I have a problem talking to my mother. Mm-hmm. It's 100% her. She is the mother. She defined the whole relationship. She defined the whole history. She was the adult. adult. She shaped you. She formed you. She instructed you explicitly or implicitly 16 hours a day or eight or whatever out of school or whatever. But even choosing the school that you went to. Is, is her effect. Parents are 100%. If there is a problem in the parent-child relationship, I don't care if the parent is 80 and the child is 60. If there is a problem in the parent-child relationship, it is the parent's fault, 100%. Because the parent has the ultimate authority as the parent. And I'm, I, I thought this before. I'm even more sure of it now that I'm a parent. She's so my daughter, so dependent, so helpless, can't go anywhere, doesn't know anything. I mean, you know, whatever, right? I mean, so inexperienced, so right. I mean, it's all what I choose to talk to her about, the way that I am around her, uh, the way that I communicate, the questions. I, I mean, I'm shaping the whole thing. She takes almost no initiative in our relationship. Of course, she's four, right? I mean, she'll I mean, she'll say what she wants to do and this and that. But as far as the relationship as a whole goes, she's got no comparator. She doesn't, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's true. So what would you suggest I do? Because I can't obviously... Do you miss her? Uh, yeah. And th- that's the whole reason I'm... I'm. Okay. I get that. Yeah. That's why you're calling, right? If you didn't miss, you wouldn't call, right? So say that you miss her. Say that you've been talking uh, about you, your childhood with your therapist or whoever and say there were some problems that I don't think we've ever really talked about. And I think that's probably why we're not talking. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the hard part. I mean, 
it's like I have this emotional paralysis. So just to to make that that engagement is difficult for me. And it's not like like I know that if I were to do it, my mom would be completely open to discussing it because she is um, a no, very open you can't person. Have a, look, let me tell you something. You okay. cannot have a relationship with someone if you're completely sure what they would do or say because then there's no point. That's true. Right. You have to be – I mean if you already know exactly what someone's going to say, then you're not having a relationship with anything other than their defenses. Well, I guess I just, I'm just um, – I'm just reasonably sure that she would be open to it as opposed to a parent who would typically kind of like get defensive and – Well, she might, but, but don't focus on her. Yeah. You have a relationship with someone. You don't focus on the other person. You focus on your commitment to honesty. The moment you focus, start focusing on the other person, it comes at the expense of your own directness. Again, sorry, this is just the stuff that you didn't learn as a kid, right? Because of the yeah. environment, right? Mm -hmm. But if you want – like I'm, I'm focusing directly on my experience and I'm certainly listening to you. I'm comparing it to principles. But I am not trying to change you. I'm not focusing on – what you're going to say or what you – I'm not anticipating or focusing on what you're going to say and do. I don't know. That's why we're having a conversation that's kind of – I mean I don't know if you feel the energy, like a live conversation in the moment. I don't know what you're going to say next. Yeah, I've been surprised yeah. like 10 times in this conversation, right? <laughs> yeah, and and the, the strange thing is I have these conversations with friends, but it's like when it comes to family, I'm just completely paralyzed. And it's, it's Right. Um, well – then yeah. cast aside your prior judgments about what happened in your childhood and simply be as honest as you can and as emotionally open as you can and see what happens. When you go in new territory, right, you, you go to some place you've never been before, you're more alert to your surroundings, right? Yeah. Because it's new. And this is how we stay alive is exposing ourselves to new things. And this is why people die in defensive relationships. Because it's just the same signposts and landmines land over and over again. If I say this, they're going to blow up. If I don't say this, they're going to – if I make this joke, they're going to – you know, right? It's like playing tennis with yourself, fundamentally kind of boring, right? Mm -hmm. And to stay alive, we need to be exploring new territory. And the way that we explore new territory is we learn and we grow and we share as honestly as we can. And that makes new conversations all the time. I mean my wife, after like 10 or 11 or whatever years of our relationship – 10 years of marriage, she's heard all my stories. I, I got nothing. Every now and then I'll say something. She's like, oh, I've not heard that before. And she's like, whoa. And we're all kind of surprised. Does she, does right? she so, listen to all your podcasts? Because that would really... No, she, she's okay. no possible time to listen to all my podcasts at all. Um, but, um, uh, but, but no, we, we, but, but I'm, I talk about what I'm thinking, what I'm learning. You know, I just learned about Bitcoins, more about it, talk about that. So it's because there's new stuff and new experiences that we get to talk about with each other. And that's how you stay alive is, is growing and, and talking honestly. And that's how relationships stay alive. And that's how we stay alive, which we expose ourselves to new things, new experiences. Yeah. You know, we have comfort in the familiar, but we have life in the new. And that's sort of the yin and yang of, of the pendulum, right? So, so when you sit down with your mom, focus only what is in your heart that you want to share with her. And that is – I mean I got a whole book on called Real-Time Relationships, which might help. It's free. Yeah, free I, read, I think I've read through half of it. 
I've got. Oh, good. To... Okay, so there's half a commitment. Okay, so you've got <laughs> to the real tour. Well, there's an I'm relationship to the last part that's actually quite helpful. Anyway, I've got to get on to another caller. Uh, I wish okay. you the very best. As always, you know, drop me a line if you can. Let me know how it goes. And uh, okay. it, it, it is so important to to connect to people. We've got the history, if, if at all possible. All right. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. All right. All right, Pablo, go ahead. Hey, Steph. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? It's so amazing, actually, talking to you. <laughs> um, well, I, I wanted to talk about um, dating, love, and sex. Um, so I'll make a little introduction. Uh, I'm approaching the middle of a two-month trip around Europe, uh, which I saw as an opportunity to uh, sort of improve my dating life, uh, given that no one knows me here. Uh, you should know that my dating life has not been has not done well because um, I'm 24. I never had a girlfriend, and I have a very poor uh, dating life. And um, well, obviously, I want to do something about it. And well, I'll pass the ball on to you to ask me a few questions, sir. Well, you know my first question, right? <laughs> yeah, it's probably going to be about the family, huh? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So what model do you have for the value of romantic relationships? Okay. Um, well, obviously my main model are my parents. And um, I would have to say um, that they do not um, they did not display a lot of uh, sexual attraction toward each other uh, beside uh, the, the, the usual um, uh, the, the kisses. But um, they... I don't know. I don't get a feeling that they have like a sexual interest in each other. And, now, uh, sorry, we obviously don't want a lot of parents playing grabby ass around kids. So it's not like you wanted them to sort of show naked mammalian lust for each other, but sort of a romantic and happy pleasure in each other's company. You didn't see that so much. Yeah, I do, but um, maybe not so much, uh, not, not so much hugging or inside jokes or anything like that. It's almost as if uh, my brother and I are are the center of their lives, and um, like they don't have anything going on between them. Like for example, um, when we are not at home, um, I mean they they, uh, they will text us and see how we're doing, but I get the feeling that um, they are not doing anything. Like like uh, fun between them, you know? What do you mean? You get the feeling. Do they ever talk about, well, we went to the opera or we went to a disco or we went uh, to play laser tag or, I mean... No, no, no. Um, they, usually, um, they usually sort of stay in, you know, and my dad fixed some stuff around the house and my mom, I don't know, wrote a few emails or cooked something. But... Um, yeah, not, not, not that much going on. And apart from that, um, I would have to say that sex is uh, sort of a taboo at home, you know? And uh, when it's talked about, it's usually uh, very uncomfortable. And um, like, for example, it was only uh, two years ago um, that, um, that I was very worried about this. And so... I, I had a conversation uh, with my parents because they they saw me that I was uh, that I was like a very um, you know um, depressed. I was going to a therapist. You mean about not dating? Yeah, about dating. I mean sexual contact with women. You know, contact with women. It's uh, it's almost uh, I see them as part of a, of a different species. Uh, it's, uh, 
when I talk to them, I feel like I, I find that enjoyable or... Um, Sorry, did you say you, you do or you don't find it enjoyable? I, it's, I find it pleasant, but I, I don't know. It's like, a, I don't know how to, how to pick up from, from just regular conversation to something a little bit more uh, romantic or sexual, you know? Right, right. So, so you feel that um, you've you've had an issue. I mean, I don't know when kids should start dating. I mean, I don't know. I think I was like fifteen or sixteen when I started dating, uh, and um, I mean, nothing particularly hot and heavy, but uh, certainly it's something that you know, once kids reach puberty, it needs to be a topic that is available to to children and and to parents. And preparing your children for sexual maturity is a fundamental it's, – it's as fundamental a component of parenting as preparing them for economic productivity. Yeah. So if you raise a kid who's just you know, an unemployed couch surfer or whatever and not not because they're working on the great world novel or something, but if they're just sort of – then, then that's not good, right? And if you raise kids who are unable to date, that's equally bad. Right. So because there's two things that we need, according to Freud, I think it's probably quite true. There's two things that we need in life to be happy. One is love and the other is, you know, meaningful and productive work. And if you raise your kids to be have meaningful and productive work, but they can't fall in love or they they can't date, then that's as bad as teaching them how to date and never teaching them or giving them the skills necessary to be economically productive. So I'm sorry about that. That's that's definitely not good, and I'm sorry that uh, you know your parents' anxiety about say. Are they religious by any chance? Uh, my mother is. Uh, yeah, they're Catholic, but not very practicing. And, um, <laughs> well, they certainly are practicing in their anxiety about sex. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess so. Uh, well, for example, uh, my mother usually um, boasts about the fact that uh, that she was a virgin when she got married. And um, my dad, for example, didn't have a girlfriend before um, before my, my mother. And from what I know, all his uh, sexual experience was um, having casual sex with, uh, with some girls on, on his neighborhood when, when he was young. And yeah, so that's but, your plan is to replicate your dad's fine start by going to Europe, right? Banging your way across the continent is that the plan? No, and it, was, it was actually kind of different because the, the girls that he was uh, the girls that he was having sex with uh, were girls that came from uh, from came from other parts of, uh, of no, the but country. it's it's casual sex, right? So because if if you're traveling through Europe in search of sex, then you're not probably going to end up with a long term relationship, right? Oh yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it was a fantasy of mine to come here and have uh, all this sex. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. And is your question? Oh, I, I don't want to anticipate. What What is your major question for me? I'm not saying you haven't asked a bunch. I just want to make sure we focus on the right one. I want a long term. I want, I want a long term relationship uh, with with a woman. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I want to know what, what that feels like. Uh, I don't know. And why why do you want a, a long-term relationship? Because I feel that... I feel that it's a part of me that, that's missing, you know? Uh, I go in, for example, uh, I go on the subway and I see couples and I see them uh, joking and having fun and laughing and I say, yeah, <laughs> I want me some of that, you know? And um, I know some some happy couples and they look very happy 
and I definitely want, want that. And I want to experience like um, being very vulnerable and having someone to be generous to. And I don't know. I, th I think right. that I'm missing out on on so many good things that. Do you want to, um, I mean, do you want to be a father, do you think, in the long run? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I find I fantasize about this uh, regularly. Right. Okay. Well, you know that the Europe sex trip is not the way to achieve your goals, right? I'm realizing that. Uh, <laughs> I've been realizing that uh, for the past weeks. <laughs> I'm not, look, I'm, and obviously I, there's no moral problem with casual sex. I mean, it's consensual, it's voluntary, blah, 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 right? And I'm sure it's fun. But if in terms of achieving your goals... Um, are you concerned that if – because, you know, the great challenge, of course, with getting into your mid-20s with no romantic or sexual experience is trying to find somebody who's not going to be like, huh? Why have yeah, you not – uh... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. and, 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 and sex itself is there, – there's some technicals involved in sex, right? I mean it's not exactly like cracking a safe, but it's also not like just opening a soda can, right? So uh, yeah. you need to – there's some technical stuff that you need to know about sex that you really can't just get from books, right? And so sexual experience is, is sort of important. Nobody's really great at tennis the first time they pick up a racket. And you know, the first time you fall into bed with someone – Yeah. If you're an expert, you don't want to go uh, play with a, with a beginner. <laughs> Right, right, right. So again, if it's a you know sex, and I guess they both involve a grip, uh, getting a good grip. <laughs> but um, but there is you know there there yeah there's experience and there's technique and there's you know things that you like and things that you don't like that are important to figure out when it comes to sexuality. Now of course, if you're both twenty uh, and you're both exploring sexuality for the first time with each other, there's an understanding that you're both learning tennis together, kind of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. And then of course you know the ideal. Uh, is to have uh, a threesome with Jimmy Connor so he can teach you the right grip. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but um, the the so so there is a challenge, right? As you go forward, other people are getting better at tennis, you and you're not, right? Yeah, I, I see everyone on the highway, <laughs> you know, just flying past me. <laughs> right, right, right. So so there is there is there's some urgency here, right? There's some like you don't want to be like this in in ten, like in five years, it's going to be completely disastrous, right? Because then you're going to need to find a 30-year-old virgin woman, and then you're both going to have to awkwardly explore this stuff together. And then there's right, and there's all the dysfunction of learning and why and all that. Or somebody's going to be more experienced, in which case they're going to, you know, you're going to feel catch up. It's going to be pretty important, right? Yeah, and so um, there's this balance problem in which, um, <laughs> on the one hand, uh, I would have to sort of putting it in simpler terms, I would have to get all the sex to get all the experience and sort of catch up. But uh, on the other hand, uh, I don't know if uh, <laughs> it's the best strategy to find a long-term partner. So I mean, now, why? I mean, what happens if you if you see a woman? That, that you feel attracted to or you're around a woman that you are attracted to, what happens? Why, uh, what's the, right? Yeah, so I, I think I could separate them into two groups. The first ones are uh, the really attractive women uh, and which I am terrified of speaking to. And the other ones um, are 
more um, sort of normal, and I'll go and I'll make some uh, make some small talk, uh, throw some jokes in, and it'll be fun. We'll talk about some subject, and um, at one point I feel that the conversation sort of dies. You know, like there's nothing, like nothing more to talk to uh, talk about. Sorry. Yeah, because you're out of show, right? Make some small talk, make some jokes. After a while, you're out of show, right? I don't know what the next move is or anything like that. Right, because you think it's a move, right? Like, who do I have to pretend to be in order to get this woman to like me, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's not going to work. I'm trying all this different shit, you know, all these different approaches and stuff. And it's, it's a train wreck, basically. So It is, yeah, because, I mean, you, you're trapping yourself, right? I mean, it's like lying on a resume. Yeah, yeah, they're going to find out eventually. Brain surgery? Here's a scalpel. Here's a knife. Oh, shit. Right? I can't even cut a sausage without half of it ending on the ceiling, right? And and so because you approach with bullshit, you can't sustain it because you sound like an honest, decent man, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, why – like what is your view of women that you think that the best thing to do to get them to be interested in you is to be like empty-headed joke and show guy? Do you think that's what women like? Well, yeah, because I've been reading some. Uh, I've been reading a lot of this literature about pick uh, artist stuff. And, yeah, and uh, the tendency women like this. Uh, excuse my French, but come hold. <laughs> and um, yeah, so yeah, they're like they're considered to be like empty-headed sperm receptacles that mean you manipulate into various positions. You know, deposit your joy juice and uh, flee into the night, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's basically sort of figuring out which tricks, which mental tricks. But trick wait, you want to, to wait. You want to be wait, 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 wait. You want to be a husband and a dad, and then you want to basically treat women as urinals. No, well, uh, you see, um, this was about uh, until about I uh, know some some weeks ago that I. It, it, it has been sort of on and off, you know. Like when I get really frustrated because I can get, uh, I cannot get a date or something, then I, I will turn to this uh, pickup artist thing, and then I'll realize just how sick it is, and I'll I'll drudge my feet to work. <laughs> oh yeah, listen. A lot of a lot of my parenting has to do with making sure that my daughter can spot phonies and manipulators, you know, like uh, like the sun on a sunny day, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it's going to be funny watching a pickup artist in the future attempt to work my daughter. I mean, it's, she's just going to be like – she's going to be like a Jedi knight, you know, <laughs> you know like those lasers coming from those robots, right? I hope. And, um, yeah, you don't, you don't want to be going down that road. I mean, any woman that you sleep with is going to be – using those techniques uh, is, is just going to be an empty-headed uh, – um, an empty-headed germ danger fest, right? So – so don't don't do that. I mean, that's just it, it, be honest. Be honest. I mean, the, the, it, I hate to say it. I mean, it's <laughs> a lot of it just comes down to this. It's my it's my whole show. It's just tell the truth. How about the truth, right? You know, you I, hey, I'm I, I find you really interesting and attractive. I'm curious. You, well, let's let's chat. Just like that. <laughs> well, isn't that the truth? Yes. And you know what the great thing is about starting a relationship off with the truth? You'll never run out of things to say because you're always thinking something, right? And so you're always thinking something. You're always reading something. But if you start off with manipulation and lies, the reason that the pickup artists have one-night stands is you, you can't keep that stuff up for long. I'm an airline pilot. I'm, 
You know, like, I mean, come on. I mean, this is ridiculous. Yeah, it doesn't feel good. I don't feel good trying to be someone else because... No, that's like pretending, look, being a pickup artist and thinking you're doing something of quality is like pretending to be a, a great fisherman because you order a fucking fish fillet at McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I've got a fish in my hand, haven't I? Well, yeah, but it's kind of cheesy and processed, right? <laughs> so, so I just, you know, be, be honest. If you find somebody attractive, I mean, you don't sort of have to walk up to a woman on the subway and say, hey, you want to start a family? Right? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, but, but be honest because you don't know if you want, right? But just say, well, you know, you, you seem very interesting. Let's let's chat. I mean, I'm interested. And look, women are not stupid. They know that when a man comes up to chat with, with the woman, that he's interested in romance of some kind, whether it's short-term sexual or long-term uh, marital or whatever, right? But, but you know, you don't walk up to like 80-year-old Chinese men on the subway and say, well, you have a nice smile. Let's chat, right? <laughs> no, right? So women, they know for a simple fact that when a man – uh, of approximately their age group or whatever, if a man comes up and chats with them, right. he's interested in something romantic. So you don't have to say, I'm interested in something romantic, right? Right. Any more than when I come up to a convenience store with a pack of gum, I don't have to say, I'm interested in this pack of gum. I would like to pay for it. Will you take my cash and give me the gum? Like, that's understood, right? They just You just give the gum with your buck and you get the gum. I mean, that's understood, right? So you don't have to say, I'm interested in my penis beating your vagina for the possible procreation of the species, Want to get a latte? Right? Because that's understood, right? You don't have to be obvious about stuff which is already understood, right? Uh, it's like getting into a cab and saying, I believe I will owe you what the numbers say at the end of this trip. Is that acceptable to you? It's like, no, we all get that, right? So, yeah, so showing interest, you don't have to sort of be explicit about the romantic or sexual interest. That's understood, right? Show interest. Go ahead. Okay, that's new to me. And, and that is kind of liberating because uh, I don't have to explain myself. Or at least. Oh, God, no. Look, look, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of our focus as human beings is on romance and sex. You know why? Because there are human beings, right? Which is only produced from romance and or sex, right? Are we not so, brains in a jar? <laughs> uh, you may be my friend, but uh, <laughs> me, not so much. Or, or my jar is really good. Uh, but... Um, no, there are, there are people because we're all interested in sex and romance. As, as, as all, you know, there's that great quote about, you know, if you stand in a forest glade and listen really quietly and enjoy the bathing of the sunshine and the gentle breezes, you can hear the sound of thousands and thousands and thousands and possibly millions of tiny little plants and animals all trying to get laid. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. <laughs> it's true though, right? That's what we're all about. And so... So that's understood. So okay, okay. So step number one, it, it's understood. So for example, um, I, I walk up to a girl, and um, what, what what would I say? Well, the first thing you say is hi, and then the moment you say hi, she knows that your penis is waving like little proboscis in your pants, trying to find something warm to nestle in, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, yeah, to be offended by that is to be offended by the fact that you exist, right? Which is the result of somebody else's penis waving at somebody else at some point, right? So. So you walk up and you say, hi, and then you say, my name is Pablo, and, um, uh, you know, I, I would like to chat with you, or, or how is your day, or, or you know, what, what are you looking at, or where are you from, or are you traveling like me, or whatever, right? And you just start chatting. And if the woman is, you know, stone cold and uninterested, then fine, her loss, and you move on, and you leave her to date somebody of much lower quality, since that's clearly what she's interested in, right? Okay. And if she's interested in chatting, then you have a chat. 
And, you know, if she's willing to do the dance of getting to know each other, then that's fantastic. And if she's not, uh, then you, you sort of move on. But um, you just, just chat. You know, and and you know what you're doing is you're looking for you're looking you're looking for some basic things, you know. Like guys are always feeling like, well, we have to go out there and sell ourselves, right? No, 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 no. That's like going to a job interview and saying you're being desperate for the job. That just means you're not going to get the job, because people will know if you're desperate for the job, then you don't really think you have anything to offer, and you're trying to get something for nothing. So when I would go and chat uh, with women, back in the days of my singledom, uh, I would look for politeness. I would look for verbal skills. I would look for a good sense of humor. Uh, I would look for uh, a sense of self-knowledge. I would look for a sense of irony, which is a sign of intelligence. I would look for, I would make a literary reference and see if she knew anything about that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, uh, so I would be looking for that kind of stuff. I'm interviewing to see if she wants the job of, you know, making kissy face or something, right? And and you're doing an interview. You are an employer. You have a lot to offer. You're smart. You're sensible. You're, you know, you're well-read. You're, you're educated. You listen to a philosophy show. That's fantastic. So you have a, you want to be a dad. You're not a player. Uh, you have a lot to offer uh, a woman. And so you interview the woman to see if you're interested in, in taking the next step. But you don't sort of sit there and say, well, I'm desperate for some sexual experience. Please, please, please. Right? I mean, women – I mean, there's this thing called hypogamy where women want to uh, obviously trade up, right? So men are interested in women who have fertility and women are interested in men who have resources. That's kind of what we're programmed to respond to and it makes perfect sense when you think about it a lot. And so if you're like the sort of begging, whining puppy dog thing, then that's obviously repulsive to a lot of women, whether they like it or not, whether they believe in it or not, uh, you know, are, you know, we had penises and vaginas long before we had philosophy, and they still kind of run the show, and you have to deal with the rules of the penis and the vagina, and the rules of the penis is fertility, and the rules of the vagina is confidence and resources. Now, resources don't have to be actual, but they do have to be potential. If you're confident and self-possessed, present yourself in a positive manner, then that's a clear sign that you are going to be economically successful, or at least as clear a sign as possible. And so that's going to be interesting to the majority of women. And so, um, yeah, so I think just that kind of stuff is is really important. Um, you are looking to find, uh, and, and to your mind, you're like, well, my virginity is a precious gift. I wonder who I'm going to give it. Uh, and look at it like like you're a um, an investor looking to invest in a company, and lots of people are pitching you. Uh, that would be my suggestion. Sure. Uh, I have had sex uh, with a couple of girls and it's i'm not a virgin okay well fine okay but you're looking to pop your romantic cherry rather than your sexual cherry right yeah exactly okay so that's an even higher standard right mm -hmm. and if you're looking to just lose your virginity you want somebody who's really really good at sex but if you want the you know if you want to if you want to get into a relationship then you want somebody who's really good at virtue and integrity and communication and bloody bloody blah, blah, blah right so so those are my suggestions. But yeah, don't go the pickup artist route. That's just a guaranteed way of getting yourself as level quality as possible. I mean, you, you can eat, but why, why eat at McDonald's when you can eat at a really great restaurant? I guess I'll just have to go out and practice a little bit. Well, yeah. I mean, you basically just it's, – it's just a matter of courage, right? I mean, everything that you want that's worthwhile in life takes courage. Right, it took courage for me to start this show. It takes courage for you to go out and uh, meet women. But so, I mean, that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's scary, but <laughs> no, it's it's good. No, you know why? Because the woman who's got real quality is waiting for you to show courage. 
Because if she was, if she would just settle for a guy who wasn't courageous, then she'd already be taken, right? Oh, I see what you mean. Like you, you want you want your woman to be hard to get. You want it to be scary. You want right. You want your woman to be hard to get. Otherwise, she's already taken, and she's not got a high sense for herself, right? Oh, oh, oh. No, okay. This is a whole different perspective. No, listen. If if you want the job, the best job ever, then you want that job to be really hard to get and really hard to do. Otherwise, that job's going to be taken like that. So you want it to be scary to approach the woman. You want her to be skeptical. You want her to be hard to win to some degree. I don't mean like playing games or something like that. But you want her to know the quality that she has. And you want her to have high standards for who she's going to date. Okay, good. And obviously the translated to being somewhere, somewhat hard to get. Well, somewhat challenging to get, yeah. I mean, for sure. And now you want you want the key to, right? You don't want her to be challenging to get like she just says no to everyone. And you don't want her to be challenging to get because she's vain or narcissistic or you don't have enough abs or whatever it is, right? You're not tall enough or you don't make enough money. You don't want her to be hard to get because she's shallow and you don't mit, you don't fit whatever that that stereotype is of whatever, right? You don't want just because she's beautiful. You don't want her to be hard to get just because she's physically beautiful, right? So what would the science be? Well, the science would be self-confidence, a good sense of humor, and a sense of like of standards in relationship, which means friendly but somewhat reserved until until she warms up, right? Oh, I see. I see. Like not, not telling me her whole life history and on the first date, or well, yeah. I mean, certainly she can talk about her history, but the other thing too is is you want somebody who has a sense of how they land for other people right so you remember this earlier caller who was talking about his terrible childhood and giggling pretty much at the same time that's not somebody who knows particularly well for reasons that are obvious and for which i sympathize how he lands for other people and listen i w- i will make a suggestion as well that uh, you i assume uh, what what's your cultural background oh uh, i'm from a south american country called uh, uruguay Oh, yeah, I know that. Okay, so, I mean, I've been there, but I know the country. You make it sound like a, a tiny town on Mars, you know, which I can only describe by clicking and slapping my ass, right? But, um, so, my suggestion would be that the highest quality women come out of the least abusive environments, right? In general. And so, what you want to do is do the research and figure out which culture is least abusive towards their children. And then, focus your efforts on women who come from that culture. By culture, you mean um, nationality or, or... Ethnicity, nationality, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like, it, it, can be a, it can be a black woman from that culture or, you know, it, if a white woman was raised in China, then the Chinese culture is kind of rough on kids, right? Right? And uh, black culture is very rough. Black culture is very rough on children. And Indian culture, uh, like Indian from India, is, is very, they were very rough on their children. And so the likelihood is you're going to get you know, traumatized victims who've had IQ problems because they've been traumatized. And unfortunately, there's not a cultural, there's not a cultural push in those cultures against that kind of harsh treatment of children. In fact, it's celebrated and praised. I think it was, and some, it was it Olivia Wilde who was on Conan O'Brien. Uh, somebody correct me, uh, Mike, if you can just watch the chat room. I think it was Olivia Wilde who was on Conan O'Brien. And she was talking about how she comes from an Asian background. She was talking about her mom would, would hit her and, and throw things at her and stuff like that. And she was, of course, joking about it. Yeah. Yeah, she was laughing. Was it Olivia Wilde? Yeah, it was her. I remember that. Yeah, okay, okay. And 
and the, the it was I mean it was fascinating because you could see her laughing about it, but you could, you could also see her looking sideways, like please stop me from laughing about it. And to his credit, you know, Carrot Top did um, uh, did say I don't hit my kids, and she said, oh yeah, yeah, white people don't hit their kids. Everybody else does, but white people don't don't hit their kids. Now that's not exactly true, but it's probably more true of sort of white Western culture than it is of say Ugandan culture. Right. So, and again, this doesn't have anything fundamentally to do with the whiteness of the person. And, uh, try to find out a little bit more about our Yeah. What are their cultural beliefs? What are their cultural backgrounds? Definitely ask women about their childhoods for sure. For sure. And if they're like, well, I was raised by an alcoholic and I'm proud of it. It's like, check. <laughs> right. Thank you for playing the sit on my dick game, but you get a big fat zero. Right. Yeah. I'll definitely learn a lot from that. Oh, you'll learn everything you need to know uh, within the first 20 seconds of somebody talking about their childhood. And as, for an example, I will give you right my history of right. So, I mean, the fact that you have an asexual life and you grew up in an asexual household is is predictable as sunrise, right? It, I don't mean it's obvious, right? But it's it's definitely predictable, right? Really? How do you can you tell? Well, you have an asexual life, which means that you grew up in an asexual household. I mean, like, you know, it, it's, it's about as complicated as you saying, well, my native language is Spanish. And I say, well, then you grew up in a Spanish-speaking household. I mean, it, it's, it's almost embarrassing to even point that out, right? Okay. Yeah. Because it's so obviously now, do they speak Spanish in Uruguay or is it Portuguese? <laughs> it's Spanish. <laughs> Spanish. Okay, good, good. I, I didn't want to get confused with that. Right. But so if you say, well, Spanish is my native language and I say, well, you must have grown up in a Spanish-speaking household, you'd be like, well, duh, Right. <laughs> Yeah, so if you say, well, I have this asexual life, say, well, you grew up in an asexual household, didn't you? Well, duh, right? And so you'll see this very clearly with, uh, with women and, and with people you might potentially date. And just, you know, be, be aware that if you are looking for something very specific, you can't spend a lot of time um, looking, right? Yeah. And so be efficient, be efficient, be efficient. That was my suggestion. And be honest and be brave. That's my, my basic thought. Well, uh, uh, what about uh, the honesty about uh, the lack of social experience? I mean, it, it will obviously show on practice. But... Well, no, but you will, of course, you will. Um, that's not that's not a first date conversation. If you're interested in pursuing that, then as you get further along, um, if you want to, you can talk about a lack of sexual experience. But you've slept with a couple of girls and you're in your 20s. It's not like you're a monk, right? No, absolutely not. Oh, Martin Luther started off as a Catholic monk and ended up with a wife and kids. I mean, do you think he had a lot of sexual experience when he made the transition? No, but he still was able to do it, right? So don't worry about that too much. All right? And the important thing with sex is that you get good at it with each other, not that you get good at it in the abstract, right? I see what you mean. So sort of like a, a process that you do together. Well, you 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 want to – like you're only going to end up playing tennis with one person, right? So it doesn't matter how good you are at tennis in general. And of course – you don't want to be with a woman who's got so much sexual experience that she's contagious, right? <laughs> contagious how? <laughs> Biologically, right? I mean, or whatever. Oh, right? oh or like an STD you know, or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Or, oh. or just who's been with so many guys that she obviously has low standards, right? Oh, okay. It's like being with someone who says, who says, I have thousands and thousands of friends, right? It's like, well, then you obviously have no standards for friendship, right? Absolutely, yeah. 
All right. Well, now I think we have uh, one more caller, so I'm going to have to jump. Uh, but yeah, uh, thank you so absolutely. much. Absolutely. This has been very helpful, and I appreciate everything you do. Thank you. So oh, you're welcome. And the only thing, the only thing I will stipulate is, is your firstborn has to be named Free Domain Radio. That's the only thing that uh, that I would suggest, uh, because you know I, I give free advice, but in return I expect free advertising. So okay. Thank you very much, and I'm sorry for the the. Uh, the tattoo that the kid's going to have to get on his forehead, but it is a pretty blue globe. So thank you very much. <laughs> okay, thank you, Steph. Bye. All right, take care. All right, Stephen, you're up. Hi, Steph. Hello. Um, I have plans on naming my firstborn Free Domain Radio already, so you don't have to uh, convince me. Oh, we got to get a numbering system then, right? Yeah, I guess I'll do uh, Free Domain Radio 7. I think seven's okay. a pretty lucky number. Fair enough. Um, and interestingly enough, the reason why I'm calling in is to talk about firstborn, having having a child. Um, there's something that I've been it's something that I've been thinking about um, when when I consider uh, relationships with women is do they want to have a child? Um, and then so I've been kind well, of do they want to have your child? I think would be right. <laughs> Right, sure. Um, so, but, I, but I've kind of come in, like I've sort of bumped into this um, pattern or this sort of thing that's inside of me that's like, um, it's like I want to have my own child. Like, because adoption is sort of put on the table. And I'm like, there, there's a part of me that's like, I don't want somebody else's kid. I want right. my own kid. And sure. then there's a part of me that's like, oh, God, how selfish can you be? You know, what do you think this is? Like, um, like you know, there are lots of other kids out there in the world that need love, and they didn't do anything wrong. Like, it's they're in the situation that they're in through no fault of their own. Like, you know, don't look at them as sort of like these throwaway kids or, or like they're not good enough. Um, and so I've been kind of... Um, confronted with the question of like why why is it so important that I have my own kids and I'm not sure if it's like sort of no, a biological thing. No, no, no. It's it's just a matter of quality control. Yeah, that's what I, I was thinking. Like I wouldn't want to bring home a broken computer and then fix it. Like I would rather just well, no, have I, again, a brand this, new computer. This... Sorry to be – I mean – and this is with all due sympathy to the kids who have it tough. And the, and, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with adopting. I think it's a, a fine thing to do. But you don't have quality control. You don't know if the mom smoked or drank or did drugs or was highly stressed during her pregnancy. But you do know for sure that if she's giving her baby up for adoption, then it's most likely that she was going through a highly stressed pregnancy, right? Because she's giving her baby up for adoption, which means she wasn't in a good place in life, right? Sure. So you just you simply do not have control over the quality of the prenatal environment. You don't have control over the quality of the first day or two of the kid's life. And you don't really have quality you sorry, you don't have control over the quality of the sperm that was used to impregnate the egg, right? Maybe the father's sperm was compromised because he was on drugs, or maybe he was an alcoholic, or maybe he's got he's prone his family's prone to cancer. You simply don't have quality control over the creation of the human life. And that doesn't mean that, again, there's nothing wrong with it uh, to, to adopt and all that. But if you're looking for sort of a sensible reason as to why this is going to be the most important relationship outside of your wife that you're going to have in your life. And, I, you know, you probably wouldn't just pick some random woman and try and have a kid with her. 
because you can't control for quality in terms of getting the right woman. And so uh, when it comes to to children, um, the, the quality is the quality control is very important in the creation of a human being. And that would be my suggestion as to why. I don't think it's selfish at all. Sure. And I mean, even if, even if it is selfish, that's not necessarily a bad thing, I suppose. But um, I guess like and, and I, I agree with you and that's come to my mind also. But what comes along with that as well is what like why what, like why do I want a specific quality in a child? Like, 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 it seems like a sort of like, I like sort of like the parents that are like, I want my child to be the best at like an A student. And I want my child to be like the healthiest kid. And I want my kid to be uh, the happiest kid. And it's like, I don't know. I think I feel like parenting is, it's not, it's not so much about what I want. It's about, um, well, what do you mean? Uh, it's not about what you would want. I don't understand that. Sure. So it's like um, – I mean do you want to have a good time as a parent? Do you want to enjoy being a parent? Sure. Well, are there certain things that you know are going to enhance your enjoyment of being a parent? Right? Yeah. I mean if you and your kid are fighting all the time, then that's not going to really, really help you enjoy being a parent, right? Yeah, but I don't – I see – why would I be fighting with – my adopted child. Well, I mean, what if your adopted child has a biologically low IQ? Well, then we right then, then the child is not going to be able to is not going to be as good at deferring gratification. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that IQ has a fairly significant environmental component, but there is a genetic component as well, and some of those genes are actually being quite quite well identified in terms of. How, how genes uh, affect IQ, right? I mean, like my family have been really smart cookies on both sides for, as far as I can tell, a couple of hundred years. I mean, one of my ancestors was John Locke's best friend and uh, was a philosopher in his own right, William Molyneux. On my mother's side, there are writers and academics and poets and all this. So we've been, you know, my father has a PhD and, and all that. So we've got smart cookieville on both sides of our genes for hundreds of years, at least that's as far as I can tell. And even far further back, right? I mean, there's, there's actually a Molyneux newsletter which goes around talking about all the great things that the, the family ancestors did, and I'm sure there's something similar on, on the other side. And so my IQ is not just as the result of my environment. My environment in many ways was... Uh, very underprivileged, right? Because I had a, a working mom when I was a kid and uh, it was uh, not high stimulus or high, right? So there's just some biological horsepower between my ears that comes out of the gene pool. And if you, if you adopt a kid, then you don't know a lot about it. But what you do know is that the parents of the kid decided to have a child or, or did what was necessary to, to make a child without being able to keep that child, right? Which means sure. that they either didn't use birth control because their 
too dumb to use birth control or they're too impulse driven and impulsivity has a lot to do with low IQ, right? The higher IQ you are, then the more you tend to be able to defer gratification because you can see what's over the hill and you can measure the cost of the present versus the cost of the future and so on, right? Lower IQ people tend to be more impulse driven. And so almost by definition, and again, I could be talking completely out of my ass. So this is just all just what I've theorized. I don't know of any studies and I, I could be entirely wrong. I just want to be really clear about that. But but it seems to me kind of by definition, people who are giving up their kid for adoption uh, decided to do what was necessary to have a child and not do what was necessary to prevent having that child with no particular capacity to raise that child. And that just seems like that's not a very smart thing to do. So it seems to me automatically you're kind of on the uh, you know, if you had to, if you had to guess, you would imagine that that would be on the lower end of the um, smart things to do. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so that would be, you know, one challenge. And of course, if you are a very smart person and you're raising a kid who's not very smart, I think that would be kind of a mismatch. And I think that would probably quite, be quite frustrating for the child and quite frustrating for the parent. So that would be, and and why would you? I mean, this is a lifelong relationship. You know, if you're a good parent, I mean, you're a parent until, and you're a parent intimately involved in your children's life and decisions until you fucking die. And hopefully that's 50 years after they're born or whatever, right? 40 years after they're born. So I don't think it's selfish to say I want as good a relationship as possible with my children. Therefore, I want to control the quality of their creation and I want to make sure I marry a woman who's smart and wise and, and healthy and all that. And we raise the kid to be smart and wise and healthy and we control the quality of the production of a kid because you're talking about a 40 or 50-year relationship. And so why wouldn't you want to have as much control over the quality of what you're creating and as much influence over the genetics of what you're creating? And that would seem to me to involve being a biological parent to a child with a woman of high quality. Sure. Now, if you care about the kids, fantastic, you know, then you can mentor a child, you can join Big Brothers, you can donate. There's a wonderful charity in Harlem that teaches good parenting uh, to underprivileged uh, parents and all that. So there's lots of great things that you can do to help out other kids, like, I mean, different to them. But if you care about poor people, that doesn't mean you have to invite, you know, three homeless people to come and live with you. Sure. It's not so much of like a have to or a should it's more like if I meet a woman and she and we get along really well and we're we're having great conversation and um, she's into a lot of the same things that I'm into um, in terms of not like she needs to be an anarchist or an atheist or anything like that, but she's just kind of. But she can think, she can reason, you know. Right. Um, and, and then I come to find it's like, you know, she doesn't want to have kids or she. Um, no, you don't. You know, you don't come to find that. Or she can't. I mean, that's what kids. you talked about at the beginning, right? Yeah, and this is this comes up at the beginning. So, the, like, you know, like this, you don't. You don't take a job without. About. Hang on, you don't take a job sure. without discussing salary, right? Sure. And you don't get involved in a woman without discussing long-term goals, right? And so, go ahead. Yeah, no, you're right, um, and I, that's. Um, I guess I've sort of learned that um, recently, but um, I guess I'm I'm I guess I'm looking for a way to like 
decide or, or determine if, um, like if I'm getting along really well with a woman and um, she's got all the, you know, philosophical thinking goodies, um, and, and for, for example, she, she can't have a child um, for biological reasons, um, it, like, it feels like that, that desire in me is very strong to have a child, um, but it's like, do I, you know, is, and I know that there's no right or wrong answer here, but I'm just, uh, you know, kind of asking for your thoughts on yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, like, you're asking me, you know, whether you want to be with the woman with an adopted child or no child. I mean, I can't answer that because I don't know the degree of love and compatibility and, and all that. But, um, uh, you know, and if you, of course, if you're very concerned, then you can go and get tested for fertility. I mean, you might be shooting blanks too. Who knows, right? So you can go and get a sperm count done. She can go and F get an FSH test uh, and so on. And you can, to some degree, determine the fertility levels prior to getting married. Uh, and you can make your decision based on that if that's obviously very important to you. But I mean, obviously, nobody can tell you whether it's worth staying with a woman who's infertile. I mean, that's that's up to your degree of love and passion and commitment and connection and so on, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. So... I guess um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm sort of wondering, like this this need to have a child. I guess the reason why I'm concerned about it is like because it feels like a very strong need. So I'm wondering if this is sort of something that is like like people really really want to have kids so that they could like because like they I don't know like they they want something to use as a poison container. I don't think that I I want. Yeah, most people most people don't really want to have kids. I mean that that we just know for a fact, right? So there's a list, and I've got I think I put this in the bomb in the brain series fdrurl.com forward slash bib. But women were asked about what they like to do, and like I don't think spending time with their own children was even in the top ten. So most people don't actually really enjoy spending time with their children, and. You know, don't take my word for it or even the statistics. Just look around. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go out for dinner, do you see parents having great conversations with their children? You know, do you see them chatting and laughing and making jokes and talking about important things? You know, every every single day, my, my, my daughter will come back with my wife. They've gone to a park and they will come back and they, my daughter will say, tell me about all your callers on the show. I want to know everything that you talked about on the show. And we will chat for an hour about I – mean, I, I translate things to age-appropriate levels and all that. But we have great conversations about that. And you know, so I like going to a, a restaurant just myself and my daughter and having uh, – we call them sweet chats. <laughs> having just chats and we'll just sit there, sit across from each other at a little two-person table or sometimes she'll sit on my lap. And we'll just chat about stuff. And it's really, really enjoyable. Sure. I can and, imagine. Yeah, she surprises me. She uh, instructs me. She illuminates. She's perceptive. She's, I mean, she's a fantastic person to have a conversation with. And if you doubt whether or not parents really enjoy the, the company of their children, just go to a park and see how many of the parents are in there playing with their kids and having a lot of fun. You will see it occasionally, but it's it's rare. 
Oh, you know, when, when we go to a McDonald's play center, I mean, I'm the only parent who's up there organizing things with the kids. I was at a swimming pool yesterday with my daughter, and she's just learned how to jump into the pool without a swimming ring. It's very exciting to her. And there were like, I think, 12 or 14 kids who were sort of eight or nine years old. There were two boys and, and 10 or 12 girls. And my daughter wanted to play with them. So we went over and I organized a game. And for about an hour, we just had a blast playing a game. And it was, uh, I mean, it was a huge, huge amount of fun. I mean, like I wouldn't trade that, those two hours for like anything. That was just a complete blast. And my wife was there too. And it was so funny and so enjoyable. And that's like, boy, it just doesn't get better than that in terms of life. And so, and you know, the parents were all like, wow, thank you for organizing that. It's like, well, don't thank me. I mean, (laughs) that was hugely fun. Mm -hmm. And you know, they're all sitting there on their cell phones and, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And it's like, but these are your, I mean, my God. I mean, it's like it's like going for dinner with, uh, you know, with a date that you've wanted to date for a long time. And then you just spend the whole date uh, browsing the web on your phone. It's like, what? I mean, you're eh. anyway. So, I, you know, I think that if you just sort of look around, I think that you will see that there's not a lot of parents who seem to be really enjoying spending time with their children. I see a lot of irritation. I see a lot of short tempers. I see a lot of sit stills. I see a lot of uh, uh, basically giving the kids stuff to play with so the, the, the adults can talk. Uh, I see a lot of kids at restaurants sitting in their seats staring off into space while their parents talk. Um, I, I don't see a lot of full engagement between parents and children. And I'm, you know, I'm trying not to be biased or anything. I'm really looking for it. Uh, but I don't see it a, a lot. I see a lot of activities where parents are like, oh, I've got, got to get her out of the house. I had to get her to do something. She was driving me crazy or whatever, right? And um, so anyway, that's just sort of my, my thoughts and observations. Sure. I actually met your daughter at a swimming pool at Porkfest last year. Um, and I was like, yay, Steph's daughter. Um, but um, the um, it's not that I don't believe you. Um, that sorry, believe you know, me about what I, I said a lot, <laughs> all of it, or just some part of it. Oh, I'm gonna go. I'm, let me continue. Sorry, um, it's not that I don't believe that parents really don't want their kids. It's like more like I question my own desire to have kids. It's like, um, oh, you're like, it, why do why would you want to have kids, right? Is this a, yeah? And I, I remember you had a conversation with Daniel Mackler where he was kind of seemed kind of skeptical about you having a kid and. He, you know, yeah, he's an antinatalist, right? I think he thinks that people shouldn't have children. Yeah, and uh, like Which I is guess, sort of a desire for non-existence, right? Because he's only there to say that because his own parents had children. But anyway, go on. Uh, okay, I don't want to uh, open the lid on that, but um, so yeah, I mean, it's like um, you know, I guess his position was sort of like if you want to do good in the world, if you want to have great relationships, there's lots of people out there to have great relationships with. You could do more good. You, like you could reach more people, um, and spread more, um, more truth by using your time and energy to, uh, just, I don't know. Oh, you know, this, this in the world. people, you know, and I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not talking about Daniel Mackler here, but this, this do shit for other people stuff. I just, I fundamentally don't believe it. And do you know why? So I don't, but I'd like to hear it. So Peter Joseph, he never made the point, and I don't know what point he was trying to make, but he basically said if there's a disease that's killing 200,000 people in one country and 200 people in another, which do you cure? Now, I thought he meant the same disease, but I think he meant – like he said the same disease. I think he meant different disease, right? And I said, well, 
it depends, right? I mean, what if you are one of the people and blah, 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 right? And he's like, well, obviously you do the 200,000. It's like, but that's not true. I mean, A, that's not true because lots of diseases that don't affect a lot of people get funding, right? I mean, otherwise all funding would go to the very biggest disease and no other disease would ever get funding. And that's just not the way the world works. The second is, did you know that if you die and they can harvest your organs, you will probably save the lives of seven people? I didn't know that. I, I yeah, have that I just, filled you know, out on I my just went ID to renew card. My driver's license. I just went to renew my driver's license and it said that. I can't remember if it's save or substantially improve, but it was – I think it was save the lives of seven people on average. Your organs will save the lives of seven people. So anybody who says, well, you got to do things for other people at your own expense, it's like you realize that by continuing to breathe, you are condemning seven people to death. So why don't you just go kill yourself in front of a hospital with a note saying, use my organs for others. And that way you've become a hero who saved the lives of seven people. Right. But they won't do that, right? Right. So this idea that, well, the numbers, I mean, it's like there was some comment on the, the uh, Zeitgeist um, debate that I had, um, Zeitgeist versus the market, which I really, really urge people to watch. Grit your teeth and get through it. It's worth it. It's very instructive. Who was like, well, I would kill myself for 200,000 people if it meant that they could live and this and that and the other. And it's like, no, you don't. It's not a theoretical. There's, you can go save the lives of seven people today. It just means you'll be dead. So you don't have to have this theoretical situation. Just go do it. Or, or give so much blood that you're dead. <laughs> you know, and then you can save the lives of one or two people, right? Sure. So this idea that people say, well, I would sacrifice myself for others. It's like there's nothing stopping you from doing that right now. And if you're not going to do that right now, well, if you are, this conversation is over because you're dead. And if you're not going to do this right now, then perhaps you'd kindly take a big glass of shut the hell up about sacrificing yourself to others because you're not doing it. Yeah, I think that I, I don't. I'm not sure. I think Daniel Mackler's approach was more like um, if it if if it's if your goal. No, I don't want to. Sorry, I don't want to get into Daniel Mackler. I like Daniel a lot, and oh, I think he does yeah. a lot of great stuff. So I don't want to get into his particular – I don't know what – and he's not here to defend his argument. I'm just talking about the yeah. argument in general that you should sacrifice yourself or others. Uh, that, that possibility is available to everyone 24-7. Right, but I don't And particularly if what... you're young and healthy. You know, I mean it, there are people who just need, need an eye. There are people who need a kidney. I mean are you signing yourself up for that? Well, no. Most people don't do that. And so if you're not going to give your eyeballs and kidneys and, and all that to strangers, then don't talk about sacrifice for others. There's other ways of doing it. And sacrifices, this sacrifice for others is a pretty gruesome thing. Uh, and it's pretty monstrous, you know, what, which, you know, are you going to die to save other people and so on? Well, we don't have to. That's the point. I would not die to save people. What I would like to do is live a life of value, uh, live a life of creating wealth, live a life of love and having positive effects on others so that they can live happy and rich lives. And through that creation of wealth and through the inculcation of generosity, charity will take care of what needs to be done. Generosity, brilliance, intelligence will take care of what needs to be done. You know, sacrifice yourself for some other kid. What if you give birth to the kid who cures cancer? What And what if it's that specific gene, your gene and your wife's gene combined with your parenting and resources, that's what creates somebody who's smart and dedicated enough to cure cancer. And then if you went and, and took some other kid from some chaotic woman and man who had a kid without even knowing how to raise it, maybe then we don't get the cure for cancer. And maybe that's just a massive disaster for the world. Maybe your kid is such a powerful artist and communicator that he or she creates the movie that puts the nail in the coughing of spanking. 
and, and creates monstrous, astonishing good for the world. Well, right, the so the, the, the antinatalists just, I don't know. I mean, if you're going to, you, you, what if you just raise a, a child of such quality that she spreads benevolence and joy and courage to fight evil around the world? And, and if you adopted some kid, that that would not have happened. So this idea that, oh, well, you know ahead of time how things are going to be sacrificed or what the effect is going to be or what's good or what's bad. No, 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 no. I mean, we don't know. And so I think that if we do that which is virtuous, that results in the best thing. Now, is it, it's not virtuous to have your own kid. It's not, not virtuous to adopt someone else's kid or anything like that. But it is important that you be a happy parent. And that, I think, means controlling for quality and controlling for compatibility. And the best way to do that is to choose a quality woman who you love to death and have a child with her. That is the best way to be a happy parent, and that is the best way to raise a happy child who's going to do great good in the world. So it's you know selfish, not selfish, sacrifice. I just I find people like that, not you, but people who make those kinds of arguments about sacrificing for others and doing things for they're just kind of creepy, and I always view them as as hypocritical because they could kill themselves and use their their organs could be used to save the lives of seven people, but they're not doing that. They're just telling me everything I need to sacrifice, and I think that's just bullshit. And I think Ayn Rand hit the nail on the head when she wrote about those kinds of creeps. Again, I'm not putting you in that category. I'm just pointing it out. Sure, I just wanted to point out that those creeps were probably they, they had to sacrifice themselves for other people as children and that's sort of how they developed that um, train of thought um, they, they had to give and not get anything back in return um, or kill themselves um, for oh, no, yeah I get other it. I get it. yeah I mean yeah the sacrifice the self-sacrifice creeps would were raised by Bad parents, absolutely, absolutely. And now they're adults. And now they are responsible for what they're doing and what they're saying. They are responsible for not passing on the abuse. And the most dangerous abuse that is passed along is the philosophical abuse, the abuse of concepts, the abuse of virtue. That is the most dangerous stuff. I mean, a drunk can only terrorize a family. An ideologue can terrorize an entire nation, right? Like Lenin. And so... Uh, yeah, so they are they are responsible for what they do and what they communicate as adults, and uh, so I don't I don't give them a get out of jail free card for bad childhoods. That gets them a get out of jail free card when they're kids, but when they become adults, then they are responsible. Sure, and I don't just as yeah, their parents were. I don't mean to imply that they get a jail out of free card. I'm just saying that sort of the core, like the, uh, the no, the no, no. The first thing you did from. there was to make an excuse for them. I don't think it was an excuse. I mean, I, I think it yes, was just, it was an excuse. Oh, it was because it you was were saying they had a bad childhood, right? But they did. So what? So did I. If there's no so. It's just they. It's just a fact. Are you telling me that that when I talk about people being creepy, self-sacrificing of others, and then the first thing you think you do is bring up their bad childhoods, that that's not anything exculpatory or anything to to provide some sort of context that is supposed to reduce my negative judgment? Um, to reduce your negative judgment. No, I think it's just opening up another um, aspect of what, of that person. Like another aspect of like where that comes from. Like the... It doesn't, no, no. What they say does not come from their bad childhoods. Bad childhood is not causal. 
Me pushing a rock down a cliff, that's causal because the rock has no free will, right? Mm -hmm. So me pushing a rock down a cliff lands on your car, that's causal. I am 100% responsible for your car getting smashed with a rock, right? Bad yeah. childhoods do not cause toxic adults. Okay. That makes sense. And I'm right, because, to, because I'm we sorry have some to, uh, Yeah, sorry that. No, no, I, this is a, this is an important this is an important topic. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm very glad that you brought it up. Now, with the exception that, of course, if your parents batter you around the head to the point where your brain gets bruised and damaged, then yes, that is causal, right? And to the possible, and again, this is sort of the fuzzy edges, right? To the degree with which extreme, extreme abuse and deprivation in the first couple of years of life may end up with a brain that, as far as I understand it, can't be particularly helped, right? Some purely sociopathic brain or something like that. But for the most part, people um, do achieve responsibility as adults. And a bad childhood is not causal because there's so much that can be done. You know, it's like saying, well, I have a history of heart disease in my family. Therefore, it's causal. That causes me to have a heart attack in my 40s. No, it doesn't. Because if you know about the heart disease in your family, then you can take the extra steps necessary as best as you can to get yourself monitored, to, to, to adopt as heart-friendly a lifestyle as humanly possible, to not smoke, to not sit around, to not eat too much red meat. Well, I don't know what, I'm not a doctor, whatever it is going to be, right? So then the fact that you have a history of heart disease is actually causal in you becoming healthier than the norm. Does that make sense? Sure. Because you've yeah, thought I, about I, it and you've reacted. But if you say, well, I have a history of heart disease, so I'm going to sit around, eat potato chips, never exercise. Well, look, I had, a, I, I had a heart attack in my 40s. That's because of my history of heart disease in my family. No, it's not because of history and heart disease in your family. It's because what you did with, with your adult life, with your adult choices. Sure. So n like I can understand like you know, 200 years ago, sure. I mean the, the – but. I mean, was it Wordsworth who was saying the child is father of the man? This, this sort of effect of childhood on adulthood has been known for thousands of years. But if you just sort of count the beginning of the psychological revolution from like 150 years ago or whatever, this stuff has been known for a century and a half, that the childhood has a massive effect on adulthood. And nobody can claim – I mean, Dr. Phil is like the number one show on daytime TV. Nobody can claim that they don't have any idea that a history of abuse is going to cause a higher possibility of repeating abuse as an adult. For people to not know that – is as believable as people having no idea that smoking is bad for them. I mean, it's just been so clearly explained and explicated for 150 years, and in particular, over the last 40 or 50 years. You know, since the 60s and since the self-help revolution of the 70s and all that, it's completely clear. Everybody knows if you had a bad childhood, you're likely to be a dysfunctional adult without significant intervention. And for people to not know that and not deal with it, they are completely responsible for that. Smokers 200 years ago, yeah, you could be forgiven for not knowing the causality. Smokers now can't really claim I had no idea that smoking was bad for me. I mean that would just be a silly claim to make, right? Sure. And people as adults – I mean they simply cannot claim anymore that they didn't know that a bad childhood might lead them to make bad decisions as an adult without intervention. So yeah, they, uh, it's not causal. In fact, a bad childhood should be causal for you becoming healthier than the norm, right? Um, so – or at least having healthier habits than, than the norm. In the same way that if you have a history of heart disease, 
that should end up with you having heart healthier habits than the norm, right? Sure. So sorry for that rant, but uh, no, it's just, okay. Um, did, did you feel like I was condescending, or I was, yeah, I was, I was condescending towards you in my comment, or? No, no, I didn't feel that it was condescending at all. Uh, it's just that um, when I made a negative judgment, you stepped in with an excuse, and it's not condescending at all. I just, I'm, and you may be right. Maybe I'm completely got my head up my ass about this issue, but if we're going to say. Right. See, here's the challenge. Just as a rational challenge, right? If we're going to say that adults are less responsible for their bad childhoods, then there's a huge amount that we need to change with regards to children. Because whatever we cha- whatever we reduce in terms of responsibility for adults, we have to reduce by about a thousandfold the responsibility for children. Because adults are way more responsible than children, right? And what that oh, means is that can yeah. That, so what it means is that if adults get off the hook to whatever degree for bad childhoods, then children get off the hook completely. For, for what happens to them as children, which means we can't ever fail them in a test. We can't ever punish them. We can't ever speak negatively of them. We can't ever correct them because they're children. And what people want to do, and I don't mean you, what people generally want to do is dial down responsibility for adults while still keeping it high as ch- for children. And what I'm saying is that these two dials are not separate. Whatever you move by a millimeter for an adult, you, you move by a light year for a child. Right, so so if you move responsibility down for adults because of bad childhoods, then you have to much more passionately argue for no punishment of children in any way, shape, or form. No negative consequences, no failing tests, no nothing. Because the children must be less by definition, children must be less responsible than adults. And so if you dial down responsibility for adults, you have to dial it way, way, way down for children. And the interesting thing is that if you dial responsibility down for children, you actually dial it back up again for adults. Because if children should not be punished, a childhood is defined as bad by excessive or abusive punishment, then if you dial responsibility down for a parent, it actually bounces way back up. If you dial responsibility down for an adult, then you have to dial it way down for children, which means children should never suffer any negative consequences for anything that they do. But the whole point of a bad childhood is you are suffering negative consequences for stuff that you do. So if you dial stuff down for the adult, you dial it way down for the parent, it bounces way back for any parent who punishes a child. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I appreciate you um, explaining it because I know you've said a couple of times that you don't mean me, but it could be me um, because I don't um, – I do tend to focus on like, like when someone is um, obviously displaying like signs of childhood abuse – I, there is a um, tendency in me to, like, forget about what they're doing now and talk to them about what, like, forget about the behavior now and, and just focus on the, the reason why that behavior is there. Like well, I'm it depends because if what it. they're, sorry, if what they're displaying is abuse that they've received, which has result in dysfunction in the here and now that's not abusive, that's one thing, right? Right, so the, the guy, guy I called in earlier said, I'm living in my car and so on. I mean, he's not abusing anyone, at least to my knowledge. So we can talk about his childhood. But when people call in and say, I had a bad childhood and I'm now hitting my children, what do I say? Stop hitting your children. Yeah, that's not an excuse. Don't give me that. 
you are hitting your children because you have chosen to hit your children. It is not the cause. It is not. Does it does not result from your childhood? Sure. It results from you not having dealt with your childhood. And I'm sorry for the childhood, but you cannot hit your children. That is a violation of the non-aggression principle. And there's no excuse called I had a bad childhood, which gets you off the hook for hitting your children. And that's true in law too. I mean a, a guy who beats his wife who says, well, I grew up watching my father beat my mother. Does he get out of jail? No, but I mean no, we're he doesn't. talking about the, the state legal system here. Um, no, but even in common law, even in common law. There's no excuse called sure. I had a bad childhood for any crime that I know of. Right. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, I think, right. and that develops out of the common law, which is that you, you simply cannot create an excuse. Now, you can have sympathy for somebody who had a bad childhood, but that does not mean that what they're doing is any less bad. In fact, if somebody was hit as a child and is hitting their own children, it's even worse in a way because they know how bad it is to be hit because they were. Right. right. It's just that I found personally that that taking that approach of, you know, you're hitting your kids and that's bad and, and you should stop because it's and, – and basically break down why it's bad and what the effects are. It's – it could raise defenses in people more so than sort of just skipping over that and going to the root of it, which is um, like it's kind of unimportant. Um, like it's important to me and other people, but to that person that I'm – if I'm trying to help them, it's um, – No, no. You're not trying to help them. You're trying to help their children. First and foremost, right, you want to help their children. Because the children are being hit, right? And the best way sure. that you help people who are doing wrong things is you tell them that it's completely wrong. It's absolutely unacceptable. In most countries, it's illegal. And if they've hit their children in the face or hit their children with an implement, they are actually criminals. And that is completely unacceptable. Now, then, you know, your history and your childhood and go to therapy and deal with it and so on, right? But you got to put that like this is absolutely wrong, absolutely unacceptable. It's immoral behavior. It's abusive behavior. That has to be clear because it's true. Sure. And I think that that could be made clear by talking about the person's childhood. Like what was done to you was not right and wrong. Like forget about what you're doing now. But why does it have to be one or the other? All hitting of it children. Doesn't. I mean I'm a UPB guy. All hitting of children is wrong. It was wrong for you to be hit as a child and it's wrong for you to hit your children. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, it's just that it raises defenses in people. So it's it's sometimes beneficial to focus on not talking about what they're doing with their children, but, but just talk about the, I guess, children in general or um, what was done to them as a child because – Okay, know. look, I, I mean, mean I, I don't want to get into a particular debate about strategy. If, if sure. that's what you're more comfortable with and if that's what works for you, I'm certainly not going to tell you that's bad, right? I mean, the fact that you're having conversations with people about this in any way, shape, or form, I think is, is fantastic. And I'm not going to necessarily get into a debate about strategy because right. maybe it's better for you to do it that way. Um, I, I don't, you know, I don't think there's any studies or proof either way. Uh, but uh, the, I have my approach and you have yours. I know that my approach works at least to a large degree because I get letters all the time from people saying, hey, man, I got, I got what you're saying. I stopped hitting my kids. However, I mean, I do it 
uh, in a less confrontational way because it's usually um, it's usually some presentation that they saw or some conversation they listened to. Direct one-on-one, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe your approach uh, is better. So I don't certainly want to disagree with you on that because I don't have any facts to back up anything objective that I would say. Sure. And I, you're, I think your approach is great. And, I, and of course, you do a lot of good for children through, you know, what your podcasts and, and all the work that you do. And I, I, I didn't call to debate you. Um, I really, I was, I was really just calling to get your perspectives and, and point of view. So I think we might have gone off on a tangent a bit, um, but I was. There are no tangents. <laughs> there are no tangents. No, that's what uh, we needed to talk about in our conversation. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a tangent. Well, that's what I'll name my second born. There are no tangents um, after Freedom Main Radio Number Seven. So um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I, I appreciate the insights that you put forward on. Um, the topic, and I'm going to think it over and, and see how I could apply that to the way that I'm viewing, you know, having a child or adoption or Listen, I, or I want to point out, Stephen, that, that your, your kids got to be lucky. And uh, uh, I think that the care and thought and attention that you're putting into being a father and the care and thought and attention that you're putting into uh, building a family life and the fact that you're thinking about this stuff ahead of time is fantastic. And uh, I just really wanted to point out that uh, it is a very, uh, a very important job that you're, you're thinking about taking on and, and your kids are going to be very lucky and this is going to pay off in a beautiful way. So I really wanted to point that out. Oh, thanks, Steph. I have tears are coming to my eyes now. Um, Beautiful. That's good. very nice good, of you good. to say. I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, I I guess um, I can't think of anything else. Um, I think you hit you hit the points that I was uh, trying to go for. So I appreciate it. And um, I guess I'm the last caller. So I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. I certainly will. Thank you, everybody, so much for calling. FDRURL.com forward slash donate. To help out, if you could help share the Bitcoin presentation, I think it's quite important for the future of freedom to get it out. And uh, so please uh, look for that at the YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Radio. Got some cool and exciting stuff coming up as usual. Documentary is coming along. I have the music and the soundtrack. So I'll be reviewing that this week. And hopefully we can get it out quite soon. I'm sorry for the endless delays. Thank you, everybody, for your patience. And remember, if you want to be included in the credits, just send any kind of reasonable donation to fdrul.com forward slash donate. And we can include you or your course or your website or whatever it is that you want uh, in the credits. And uh, so thank you, everybody, so much. Have yourselves. A wonderful, wonderful week. I will talk to you Wednesday night.